Good morning. I am Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. We're pleased to have back Judy Estrin, the author of Closing the Innovation Gap and CEO of J-Labs LLC, back in our studio today to follow up on our great interview from last week. Judy, welcome back. It's nice to be back. You know, I was very curious when I read your book in regards to your recipe and hearing what the Obama administration has said in regards to uh, education and, and, and science and technology, do you think anyone in the administration has uh, read your book? Well, when, you know, when you write a book, you, n- you never really uh, know who has bought it and read it. <laughs> but um, I will say that I, um, during the transition, um, there were a set of working groups around different policy areas. And I was involved in the group uh, called Technology, Innovation, and Government Reform. So I worked closely with uh, people on the transition team and uh, many of the people on that team ended up going to work in uh, either the Office of Science and Technology Policy, some to the FCC, and uh, other um, agencies in the government. So um, I do believe that there are uh, certainly people that I interacted with who had read the book who are sprinkled through the administration. And within the, uh, I know we talked in our last interview in regards to the, the academic, sec- academic sector, folks that you've talked to, but what about at the community level when we think about K through 12 and we think about the local um, education officials? Mm-hmm. Um, have you been able to have any discussions with them? Well, you know, I, I have here and there. Um, again, uh, I've, and I have gotten feedback through my website from people in various uh, uh parts of the country that either are, are on school boards or, or involved in K-12 through education who have um, read the book and commented on it. But as I said before, it's sometimes it, it's, uh, it's hard to know uh, who has, has really read it. I have uh, spoken to groups both uh, at the high school level and uh, educators as well as uh, the higher uh, education about the concepts in the book, and um, so I've, I've had a, a, a number of di- discussions. There, there's no question, though, that to turn this problem around um, takes leadership from every sector. And um, a lot of people ask me what I've learned over the last nine months or what has been the common theme as I've talked to all of these different groups from businesses to private sector to public sector to education. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that as I've gone around to these different groups, everybody seems to acknowledge that we have some deep structural problems, whether it's in uh, with the financial med- meltdown, whether it's problems in education, whether it's uh, problems in terms of investment, uh, looking a bit longer term. One of the things that's been very disappointing to me is that everybody I talk to wants to point to someone else that needs to change. Mm. So um, you have people who say there's too much government, there's too little government. Um, CEOs want to point to Wall Street as causing the problem and putting pressure on them uh, for short-term returns. Entrepreneurs point to VCs, VCs point to entrepreneurs. And um, one of the things that I try to end every one of my presentations with and that I would like to reinforce and I think is consistent with your 
theme is it, it took all of us to get into this mess. The fact of the matter is, when I say us, every single uh, community, I'd, I'd say every individual in, in this country, helped contribute in some little way, um, culturally or by either not caring or uh, taking explicit action that contributed to the, the, the crisis that I believe we're in today. And I think it's going to take all of us to get it, us out. And so um, whether or not you are a leader of people or at a company or a community, everybody is a leader of themselves and should be a leader of themselves. And if we all... It changes really hard, and so that's why people want to blame and look to others to change. Really what we need to do is actually look to ourselves and say, what part of the world, the community, the, the, the innovation ecosystem do we each individually have some impact on, and how can we change our behavior and influence the community around us to try to change that culture and, and, and get people to think a little bit longer term, get people to embrace questioning the status quo, get people to not be so fo focused on greed but more focused on long-term prosperity. Because if you think of greed, that tends to be thinking just about yourself. When you think about long-term prosperity, you're thinking about yourself, but you're thinking about yourself in incorporated into the the um, uh, the benefit of society into the fabric that's correct mm -hmm. that's, I, I fully agree have you had a chance to uh, read John Blossom's book content nation no he talks about the the ecosystem as well and and uh, and it seems to me that uh, I'm here in the South Orange community and my daughter is 12 years old and she wants to be an EPA agent so she's big on science mm -hmm. and I really try to instill in her that she needs to read and study as much as she can. And she gets that encouragement in school. But I know that that doesn't happen in many households. So the parents need to take a very active role in their child's education and not say, oh, it's the school's responsibility to do that. And science has got to become cool again. Right. You know. I, I just spoke on a panel last week that with... Uh, Sally Ride, who uh, was the first woman ast astronaut, and she has a company called Sally Ride Science, and the whole purpose of the company is uh, targeting camps and a website and clubs and materials to, uh, towards middle school uh, girls and boys to keep science fun and keep science cool. And uh, we need more things like that that, e that come from the schools, that come from um, parents, that come from... Uh, uh, extracurricular activities. There's an organization called FIRST that has robotics competitions throughout the country that is a, a wonderful mechanism to get people to experience the excitement around science. You know, if you think about math education, the way math education is, uh, the way math is taught these days in K-12 through education, it's kind of like saying to a kid who doesn't like vegetables, eat your vegetables. And mm -hmm. um, but the fact of the matter is if a kid doesn't like vegetables, you take the vegetables, you puree them up, or you put a lot of cheese on them, or you mix them with something else, and they suddenly like vegetables. And math, just if, if you just focus on math and the fundamentals of math, it's hard um, 
for kids to get passionate about it the way it's taught. Um, if you think about it, once you're taught how to read, you then get exposed to this whole world of books and all of this fascinating stories because you can read. But when you're learning math, nobody tells you why or, or shows you why math is important because we learn math in a vacuum. We don't learn it together with its application. And so if we were to, we, we really need to think about how we teach to engage our kids and make these subjects relevant and, and get kids excited about them and keep them that way through, um, through middle school and into high school. That is so true, because when, when you make math fun and folks can understand exactly how this is going to help them. I, 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 they will get so energized behind it. Uh, it's interesting. We have a tutor for my daughter in math, and um, she does that. She comes by every Monday, and she makes mo- math fun for Bailey. Mm-hmm. And uh, without that, I, I don't think Bailey would be doing as well. Right. But, but to Bailey's current teacher, is a good teacher, um, but very strict and by the book. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not fun. So I, a very good point. I'd like to switch gears here for a moment and talk about those seven companies that you started. Mm -hmm. Um, That is phenomenal. Um, Some folks are still trying to work on their first company. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and you've done it seven times. Um, Is it just a natural for you? Or what was the the ingredient, the recipe for success that allowed you to really establish yourself as an entrepreneur and doing seven companies? Right. So let me just say the the first three were companies that – uh, we built from scratch and and grew the 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 other four was the business model that in two thousand we started a company called Packet Design, which was an incubator that then spun off three companies so I co founded those other three but didn 't actually run them but the first three um, and uh, the, the first one uh, was Bridge Communications that I took public, um, and then we ended up merging. The second one also went public, um, and then the third one was sold uh, to Cisco. So, you know, I think that um, I, I made a very critical decision coming out of uh, my master's degree and decided I had uh, job offers from several large companies and decided uh, to go to a company where uh, somebody told me the smartest people they knew were, and it happened to be a, a small 50-person company, and I got exposed to entrepreneurship through going to that company. And I very quickly realized that although I loved technology, I was not um, – I really liked working with people better than just being uh, – interacting with the computer, so I was an individual uh, contributor for a couple of years, but moved into management um, very quickly. And I also realized that I love the entrepreneurial um, process, starting from nothing, identifying needs and problems to solve, coming out with those first products and working with customers to uh, adapt them to meet their needs. Um, I had a willingness to, or I was able to um, go into something knowing that it uh, it might not come out the way I thought, and the adaptability to kind of take a company in in, in different directions. Um, to me, what what I love about entrepreneurship is um, really it's about problem solving. It's about identifying needs in the marketplace and and coming up with um, solutions to it. But it's also about 
uh, developing a culture and working with the people and developing the people in the company and, and um, uh, growing together. You know, something that you said I think is very key, which leads to my next question in regards to what are the key characteristics that you feel that an entrepreneur should have and the fact that you were on the leader position to determine which companies you would fund within your incubator. I guess adaptability is probably one of the big characteristics based upon what you, you've just shared with us. Yes, I think early on, um, especially if you're looking at the, at the very early stage company, it's very important. To, it, it, you need this combination of being really passionate about your vision, but being open to change. And those are often contradictory because a lot of people say, well, what an entrepreneur needs is passion and focus and just decide where you're going and overcome any obstacle that comes in your way. On the other hand, um, I think if you look at the most successful entrepreneurs, often their companies, whereas it might have followed the initial vision, the actual implementation of the idea may be very different than where they started. And so you need to have that balance between passion, vision, and focus, and openness to listen to the marketplace, to people, listen to yourself, and be willing to adapt and change. And, and often what you want to be able to do is make um, uh, people often ask me when um, I was running companies, you know, what are some of the biggest failures or biggest surprises? And one of the one of the things that I always tried to do was catch things when they were small, being tuned in enough to customers and employees and the, the marketplace and, and tracking what was happening so you caught problems when they were little and adapted rather than things becoming a crisis. And I think when you are in a big company, you have enough resources that if there is a crisis, you can... Uh, deal with it more easily than when you're a fragile little company. You don't want things to become these huge crises. You want to um, catch things as early as you can. And that comes from a similar analogy to um, your own personal health. You'll still stay healthier if you're tuned into your body and if you're tuned into changes and you are preventatively track things before they become life-threatening or, or big problems. So I think the same is true in, a, in an entrepreneurial environment where you just, need, you just want to be flexible and adaptable while not being wishy-washy, while still being focused on your passion and vision. So when you're looking at someone who you might be an advisor to uh, in regards to uh, investing in their company or uh, giving them advice, what are the key characteristics that you look for for folks and folks that you're going to spend your time with? Because your time is very valuable. You're very Mm -hmm. busy, Mm -hmm. and you want to make sure you're investing your time wisely. So what type of criteria do you use when you look at an entrepreneur? I I think some of this is a little bit repetitive, but uh, passion, um, openness to to listen, to be willing to um, self-assess, a a willingness to try and, um, and, and take risks, um, a, uh, I think that the, the, the signs that often turn me off is when I find somebody who is uh, 
so self um, uh, whose ego, you need a strong ego to be an entrepreneurial leader, but if that ego crosses over the line to arrogance and you don't listen and you're not open to input, um, that can um, really turn into a problem. And so the, the, the leader has to be willing to not just listen to their advisors, but listen to um, their employees, listen to the marketplace, uh, be willing to question uh, their their own direction. And then the other thing is uh, inspiration. Um, there are two, one of, the, one of the biggest impediments to innovation and to change is fear. And unfortunately, a lot of people uh, think that they, they know the phrase that necessity is the mother of invention. And so uh, people will often think that intimidation or threats are a good way to motivate people. But the fact of the matter is that it's not threats or intimidation that is motivating. It's challenge and inspiration. And so what you really want to do is take any threat, whether it is a threat of competition or, if you think about the country, a threat to our security. You want to take that threat and you want to turn it into a challenge and, and, and um, articulate it as a challenge and use that challenge to inspire people to get involved, and then you actually turn on the leadership function in, in, in an individual's brain. If you take a threat, whether it's, again, a competitive threat or a security threat, and just use it to intimidate and to scare people, they actually close down, and, they, and innovation shuts down. And so um, I think a very important part of effective leadership of a country or entrepreneurial leadership is the ability not just to have a passion and a vision, but to use that passion to inspire others to um, to uh, to innovate and to get involved. I fully agree. I think one of the greatest uh, documentaries was uh, Tom Hanks' From Here to the Moon that mm-hmm. they did on HBO, where you. Sh- you really got to see step by step as to how they really put the whole program together. And then, of course, Apollo 13 and how they were able to uh, use their uh, their inspiration to bring these, those folks home. Mm-hmm. So I, I fully agree with that. That is that is very, very good for the audience to hear. And uh, tell us about your management style. How would you describe it? Um, I would say that I am um, open I am um, collaborative. I tend to, um, uh, it's interesting, I, I, um, I would say my, my management style is similar to my parenting style, which I believe that communication is critical, but communication is two-way, and that um, people who have worked for me know that I respect them and believe that I can learn as much from them as they have to learn from me, on the other hand, I believe that um, there's there there is a time when people need a direction, and they so you you want to be open and you want to be let people be involved and um, have a free flow of ideas. But I think people also in certain situations need to know that there's someone there making direction uh, decisions, and so um, they want comfort in the fact that there is leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I have a, a combination of uh, knowing when the decision needs to be made and then other people, uh, and, and then 
communicating the why and getting people involved in implementing that decision, but also being uh, knowing when it's the time for discussion and input and uh, an openness and collaborative style with the people. I'm, I'm very uh, um, not hierarchical at all in my style. I do not, uh, I abhor politics, mm-hmm. which is probably why I have, um, I don't mean politics in terms of the country, right. I mean right. politics in an organization, which exactly. is probably why I have enjoyed building my own companies more than working in a big company. Um, the big companies I'm involved in is from the board level, which is a very different experience than kind of working in a big hierarchy. Yes, yes. And uh, what have been some of the challenges that you have faced during your career? You know, uh, lo- lots of things along the way, but I, I also have been very fortunate to uh, have built my career at a time when the industry was just in this huge growth spurt and um, so I was in the right place at, at, at the right time. I think that the challenges, I started uh, very young as an entrepreneur, and I think some of the biggest challenges for me, um, some of them were internal. When I first started managing, it was very hard for me to make hard decisions. I didn't want to upset anybody. I uh, had an engineering background and always wanted to analyze and make sure I had enough of the data. and. I really had to learn over time, um, as I said before, that there's a place and time to make a decision, and not everybody can be happy with the decision. And so you can get input, but at some point you have to make the hard calls. And I think learning that was a challenge for me and something that I had to uh, overcome externally. Um, again, I've been fortunate to be in a young industry, so um, being a woman was uh, perhaps uh, not the most common. Uh, um, uh, th- th- I, I, w- I was often the only woman in a room full of men, but it was not because the industry was so new and because I'm in Silicon Valley. It That never became a real obstacle for me in, in my career. And I, I think actually I've been fortunate that there's been lots of little obstacles, raising money, convincing somebody to use a product, finding the right people, um, making decisions whether to merge the company or not. I mean, there's all sorts of things like that, but um, they were those challenges were part of the excitement of building my career. And I've been fortunate not to have unsurmountable ones. Excellent, excellent. Uh, my follow-up question was, how do you overcome them? But you've already answered that. So I think, you know, you <laughs> overcome these challenges by not being overwhelmed by them. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes challenges just can consume you. And I think that my approach has always been to take a look at a challenge and then say, okay, if this challenge is overwhelming, how can I look at, is there a piece of it that can, I can address? And how can I look at the different elements of the challenge so that I can or get help and, um, and, and crank through it. So I think you overcome them by uh, facing, recognizing it, um, not running away from it, and uh, trying not to be overwhelmed by it. And sometimes I just go home and cry, but then after I cry, I face the challenge. <laughs> uh, you serve on a number of boards. Uh, tell us about your experience on these boards as it relates to your technology and your expertise? You know, I I have really enjoyed um, and continue to enjoy sitting 
on boards. Um, uh, I currently sit on the Walt Disney Company, the board of the Walt Disney Company, and FedEx, two phenomenal companies. Yes. Um, and I, I think I contribute uh, broadly in terms of my overall expertise, as well as um, have contributed in terms of my understanding of technology and being able to bring that understanding to the, the companies. But both of the companies that I am involved in um, are very committed to uh, or, or very aware of how technology impacts their business, how to leverage technology to improve their business. And so um, I would say that I, um, uh, my experience has been very positive. Again, I think I have been able to contribute in this area, but one of the reasons why I think I'm on both of the boards is because both companies believe that technology is important enough to their strategy that they should have uh, knowledge of technology in the boardroom. That is really awesome. In the STM industry, uh, I think the science, technical, medical industry, I think sometimes they struggle with technology in regards to moving to uh, new technology, uh, such as semantic technology. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been abreast of the latest developments in semantic technology as it relates to the commercial products? Um, I'm not, uh, I, I can't say that I'm completely up to date on yeah, that. Yeah, I, I find that um, we're starting to see, like Microsoft has Bing, and, and there's, a few, mm-hmm. there's quite a few, about 300 other semantic technologies that are out there. But I, I do find that folks are starting to understand how it can help you to aggregate information and pull out the key concepts and then allow the, the, the reader to see millions of pages of information on a particular visualization on one page, which will allow them to go there. And I, and I think that uh, I've been reading a lot about semantic TV lately. And uh, uh, there's some tests out there, but it's very low key. But uh, I think that's something that probably Walt, the Walt Disney Company probably will be uh, looking into very shortly. And you find that the boards are very up-to-date on technology? Yes. I mean, you know, uh, again, depending on what, techno- you know, what technology you're talking about, sometimes there are areas they are more up-to-date than either. But both of, uh, both of the boards I sit on uh, have a real commitment to, um, to, to tracking the latest in science and technology and really uh, understanding where it can benefit their business. And, and Judy, what advice would you give to our undergraduate and our graduate students who are graduating in December and, and May of next year in regards to looking to develop a career in information technology or the, the technology space? What are the, th- the three things that you think that they really need to bring to the table to be considered for an entry-level position? Well, I think that... Um, hmm, I, I think that... Uh, one is, is it an area they're really passionate about? Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of different uh, aspects of the IT industry, and they really ought to uh, look around. And, and I actually think in the early stages of your career, be willing to uh, perhaps, and especially in an economy like today, be willing to take jobs and don't feel like that has to be your long-term career, but view these early years as skill-building. And so um, really think about what aspects of IT that you want to develop uh, uh, more skills. I think that if you have uh, 
while you've been working on your undergraduate or master's degree, have done some internships, some work, some projects. Uh, having that little bit of experience will, will help in terms of uh, um, getting a job. But I also think that um, I believe that some of the most exciting areas for information technology looking forward are going to be not as much just technology for technology's sake, but looking at how information technology gets applied to some of the major problems that we have to solve. So whether it is the application of information technology to uh, healthcare, and it might be health IT, or it might be uh, robotics uh, for prosthetics, or it might be imaging technology for uh, learning more about the brain, or it may be the application of social networking into the enterprise in terms of um, enhancing innovation or communication within a company, or it might be the application of technology to education, um, or the application technology to alternative energy, um, or to monitoring one's carbon footprint or energy usage. So I think a lot of, when I got out of school, I was at the beginning of the growth phase in the computer and communications industry. Those industries have matured somewhat, and there, there are jobs to be found in those industries, and, and uh, IT is still uh, an interesting area to work, but I think looking forward, there will be more growth in looking at applying com- computer information, communications technology to some of these major problems that we, uh, that we have in front of us. Wow, this is fantastic. Uh, Judy, we are out of time, and I want to thank Judy Estrin, the author of Closing the Innovation Gap and CEO of J-Labs. Judy, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, and it's been fun. This is Darrell Gunter, your host of Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM, Seton Hall University. Have a great week, and remember, leadership begins with you.